How are we doing today, church? Good? Good. I got a lot of good goods there, so that's a good sign. Um, I'm going to dig a, just dig right into these verses that we're going to talk about today. As Chris said, we were, we're going to talk about love. Um, by the way, if you've only been here for a year or less, you probably are thinking, who is this lady up here? My name's Marta. I'm a pastor here. I haven't preached for about a year, so thanks for coming and showing up. Um, I have been on sabbatical, so you may not have seen me. And one of the things that I did over sabbatical, actually, I got ready to move over sabbatical, and then I moved when I got back, which was really smart, right? No. Um, and one of the things that, you know, how do you get so much stuff when you move? I don't get it. I don't know where all the stuff comes from. But one of the things that I dug up was this little cross-stitch that I received at my wedding from my mother-in-law. Y'all remember when cross-stitch was a thing? Some of you young people are like, ah, it's never been a thing. In the 80s, it was a thing. And it was this first, so as I was thinking, I've got to preach in about a month. Um, what should I preach on? This verse came up. This was all like covered in dust, and then it came up pristine like this. And um, let's go ahead and go to these verses. I just thought it was interesting that I got them at my wedding. They're 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bible app, you can turn to that. If not, um, hopefully it'll be showing on the screen behind me. It's pretty long, so I'm going to dig right in. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongue, tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I, have, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. For where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror. Then shall we see face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. So um, I said I was going to talk about love, and I brought this out, and I thought, this, this is read at so many weddings. Who had this at your wedding? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all, Paul, who wrote these words and this beautiful rhetoric, I'm sitting there thinking, this dude wasn't married, right? <laughs> 
easy for him to say, love is patient, love is kind. <laughs> so uh, this, is, this was 30 years ago for me, and what you know now, after 30 years, right, is something different than what I knew at 24 when I first got married. Guys, I thought I knew it all. I knew nothing about love, nothing. Um, now, 30 years later, I know just a little bit more, but I'm still not there. And I think about this, and so I dug into why Paul wrote these words, being unmarried as he was, and I wanted to do some research, like what drove him to write these things? They're beautiful. Um, and so I looked back at the inception of the Corinthian church, and I thought, what's the situation here? What called him to write this? And it was fighting. Fighting in the church, guys, not fighting in a marriage. Fighting amongst people. And um, so I'm gonna, I wanna go back to 1 Corinthians and I wanna show you where he starts the whole chapter, okay? This is what he talks about in the very first words of 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, he says, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. Some of you say I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos and another say I follow Cephas. And still another just says I follow Christ. In fact, there were a lot of conflicts and quarrels at the church in Corinth. And as I did my research, one of my favorite authors, Ben Witherington, says this. And I want to show you, and I, and I had um, Alex put these all up on the screen. But there were five main quarrels that they were fighting about in the Corinthian church that I wanted you guys to know about. So bear with me. We're going to go into our heads for a minute, and we're going to see what Ben Witherington said about the quarrels. The, the book is called Conflict in Corinth. There are five primary conflicts. First, partisan attachments to particular Christian teachers, which is how he starts the um, chapter. Two, continuing adherence to particular cultural values, especially on the part of the wealthy, which were leading to lots of lawsuits within the church. Three, hubris, which means thinking more of yourself, being prideful. On the part of some, who are using certain spiritual gifts in ways that do not build up the community. People were thinking they were better than other people. Four, disagreements regarding sexual conduct appropriate for Christians both within and outside the marriage. And five, disagreements over eschatological matters, the end times, such as the resurrection and whether the present state of the believer involves reigning, glory, and the like. People arguing over you know, things that, topics in the church. Witherington goes on to say that most of these arguments, except perhaps the last one, were social and cultural in nature, not theological. This is what Witherington says. So my question to you is, do, does any of this look familiar? Ah, I got a little giggle there. Not much has changed, has it? And so then I have to, we have to ask our, ourselves the question, why aren't we further along on this? What is happening? 
did we get further along and then move back or how, how's it going here? How do we get to this divine love? So um, I also said that I was on sabbatical and I want you guys to know that um, if you guys are noticing any kind of quarreling or arguments or whatever like that, this, has, this is not unique. This is not unique to today, but it's not unique. I visited a lot of churches on sabbatical and everyone are having cultural conversations about what is okay and what is not. I don't think there's a church out there today that isn't discussing some matters of cultural issues. But here's what the good news is, is that time, as difficult as it seems that this, things have gone on this, this long, time is of importance. And I think that we can show and have some good news about what time is doing over, over the last 2,000 years. Here's what um, the verses I want to share. Again, I want you to read these again. Because time, again, I'm going to refer to time and about what we know then and what we know in the future. Let's read these again. Love never fails. You see the word never there? Never has to do with time, right? But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge. Remember, they were fighting about all these spiritual gifts that people had. Paul says, those are all going to, they're not going to matter. I don't know if they're going to stop, but they're not going to matter. Because when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Then he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. It has to do with time, right? When he was a child, and what he is now. It's pretty confident that when he became a man, he put all those childish ways behind him. Because he says, for now, we see only a reflection. We only see a part of it. And, that, and then we'll see face to face. We'll see God face to face. He's referring to God. We're going to see God face to face. And we'll know him fully, even as he knows us fully, as we are fully known. And then he repeats once again, out of all the three that remain, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. So Paul says it here. Deacon referred to it last week when he talked about cruciform love. Jason referred to it in the, in the past few weeks that there's a maturing process. There's time that has to happen, both as individual Christians and as the church. So really 2,000 years of of some same behavior doesn't seem like that that long when it comes to a global church, a global group of Christians. To get 200 people to do the same thing, guys, I've said this before, it's like herding cats. <laughs> but to get lots of people globally, thousands and thousands of Christians to agree on any one topic is going to be super difficult. Time is of essence. It doesn't happen overnight. The maturing of us when we're children happens over time. I didn't know what love was when I first got married, and then I knew what it was. It wasn't what I thought it was. Love must become a marker of more of who we are, not what we do. And Dean said that last week when he talked about cruciform love. He said it happens usually at the end of the maturing process, that we would be that selfless, that 
cruciform to look like Jesus on the cross. But here's the deal, and it's not our fault. And, and what I mean by this is that we only know in part. You only know what you know. And you can't know it. This sounds really dumb when I'm saying it right now. You only know what you know. You can't know, no, no more, right? Like, you just don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what you haven't yet experienced. And if those experiences require us to mature in Christ, we can't help that we don't haven't experienced those things. It just is the way it is. We, we, that's why he said patience was the first thing first, right? We're not yet adults. And on this cosmic timeline that he talked about, the end times and the time that time began, our lives are somewhere there. And we only have that part in this cosmic timeline. And we only know that the part that we know until Jesus comes back. We're not God. We do not know the full picture yet. And no human be, being on earth can say, I know God's will for me for the rest of eternity. No one can say that. And if they are, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Scripture says it right here in verse 12. We know, now know only in part, and then we will know fully. We'll know more as God reveals it all to us when it's time. Remember that uh, movie that Jack Nicholson says, I'll tell you the truth. You can't handle the truth. I think that's a lot of what I hear when I hear when I ask God to reveal himself to me and it says I'm not sure he can handle it. God's glory is pretty big for us to have to, to consider. So somewhere between instinctual survival, selfishness, and God's cosmic future, we're here on this ride called life. And here's what I think. We're not yet perfect in our love because Jesus hasn't returned. And yet we are not released from the responsibility of love. We're not yet perfect, and we're not yet released from trying and practicing this love. We're not required to be perfect at it because we don't know everything, and nor should we. And yet, it's our job to keep practicing it so that the story can be complete someday. Because we are in a process, a maturing process. And if we want to stay in that process, we have to keep practicing it. So, um, I'm going to do a little preaching thing here. And um, that's mainly because I don't want to keep meandering in this, in this sermon. But there's three things that I think we're going to need to grow up. It's going to sound a little snarky, so bear with me, okay? In order to grow up, we are going to have to put up. We're going to have to shut up. And we're going to have to show up. And I, it sounds snarky, but you'll remember it. <laughs> In order to grow up, we'll have to put up, we'll have to shut up, and we're going to have to show up. Okay? So, first of all, put up. Paul says this all over the scripture. Jesus shows us this. In order to mature in Christ, we will someday have to embody this cruciform love. And if that's a goal of ours, we're going to have to put up with each other. We're simply going to have to put up. In order for us to get along, Paul pleads with us to put away our selfish desires and to care for each other and to care for those who are at different places in this maturation process. 
different places in the journey. We're taught everywhere else to look out for yourself and not to worry about those other people who are immature. You know, those people are immature. But it's ourselves and our own maturation process that we are, that's where we learn how to put up with other people. Um, I'm going to tell a story about what happened. This is 20 years ago, and I doubt it's anyone in here because I don't even remember who this happened with. I think Chris Lee is going to be the only one that witnessed this thing happening. But at some point in my, my 25 years here at Lakeland, we were at the old offices, and I was in a knitting phase. Not a cross-stitching phase, but a knitting phase. And it just helped me kind of calm down, and I knit probably oh, I don't know, a hundred scarves, because that's all I could do, <laughs> scarves. But um, I'm sitting, and I, I might have been talking to Chris. I don't remember who I was even talking to. But it's, it actually says something that I don't remember who the characters were, but I actually remember the incident. So here it goes. It's not, I'm not proud of it. Someone comes in. I'm knitting. I got my feet up. I'm just chit-chatting, talking to another staff person. And the guy says, uh, it was someone that came to church here, is this what I pay my tithe for? <laughs> so, um, get it. He, he was not um, very kind to me. And believe me, I was not very kind in what I was thinking. I was, I was not very loving. I was not very happy. In fact, I, the... The thing I did was I got up and I ran right to Dan Wilburn, our founding and senior pastor's office, and I said, do you know what he said to me? And do you know what Dan Wilburn did? He laughed. <laughs> Sometimes I think he likes when I get really mad, but he laughed at me. And he said, oh, Marta, he doesn't know what he just said. He didn't know. He didn't know, number one, that I wasn't even paid by this church at that time. <laughs> he didn't know what he was saying. There was something going on with him that he just didn't know. It was my um, first lesson in putting up with people and, and what they say and knowing that people put up with me and what I say and how I react. So um, put up is Shut Up's twin sister, right? So let's talk about Shut Up. My first instinct was to say, first of all, back to this young gentleman. I swear I don't remember who this person was. And um, when you have to start a conversation with first of all, that's a huge red flag. Just stop right there because that means you've got a list that you're about to unload. So my, my first instinctual instinct was to go through a diatribe. But then, after I told Dan, and he said, don't worry about it, let it go. Basically, let it go is the same thing as put up. I knew I had to shut up. I couldn't tell anyone about this because what's the point, right? This is really petty. And I remembered the verse in Proverbs. Where there are many words, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. It turns out that shutting up actually enables me to embody love. 
it enables me to embody that love is patient and love is kind. I love this quote by David Augsburger because here's the deal. I'm going to tell you the quote, but first listen to this. Talking and saying too much is... We cannot listen when we're talking. It's just simply not. Our brains can't do it. So in order to listen and to get to embodying that love, we have to stop talking. This is hard for me. It's hard for most preachers. I'll just tell you that. But this is a quote that I want to share. Being heard is so close to being loved that to the average person, it's indistinguishable. So practicing shutting up is actually practicing the embodiment of love because it actually enables us to listen. It's a really, really easy test. So if you want to test love, see how that one works. I never, ever regret saying less. I have often, often regretted saying too much. So wouldn't it be cool like if, if all of our lives had this narrator and the narrator was in the voice of God? Have you guys seen those TV shows that the narrator says, and so, I would love if God had this audible narrate in in my head that said, this wouldn't be the last time that Marta had to learn this lesson. Because she didn't know that true love isn't transactional and there's no exchange that we can do to experience God's love. Marta would need many more stories like this before she would really see what divine love was. I have a ways to go, but I'm better than what I was 25 years ago, hopefully. So lastly, we're going to put up, we're going to show up, we're going to shut up, and we're going to show up. And I get it. I'm preaching to the choir, preaching to the uh, congregants here, right? Because you're here and you showed up. But showing up actually is something different because people can show up every time to a sermon or to... to, um, a teaching and be here and not really be present. So showing up to God's love gives us an opportunity to experience his love and then to embody it. If we can't experience it ourselves and see it and notice it, then it becomes really difficult to extend it to others. Um, I'm reading this book called Beholding, and I think some of us in this church is reading it now, but I wanted to give you a quote from it. Uh, Read a couple paragraphs. The author says, I had been asking for love my whole life, expecting it to come at me from heaven in some kind of tangible, miraculous way. Instead, I needed to awaken to the reality of its existence within me, to accept it not as something God gives, but as who he is, that cruciform love we talked about last week. I needed to commit myself daily to sitting in that reality and nothing else, welcoming, believing, receiving, and experiencing it. It was through this realization that I noticed my own nature changing. I began to see others differently, to treat my children with more patience. I became a little slower, a little less angry, a little less anxious. I was learning that the greatest power in prayer is to be together with God. And that being is often as much as the answer to the prayers we're praying as the answers we're seeking themselves. 
Jesus promised his way to love is not complicated or for the initiated. Standing in the public space during a festive gathering of the people of Israel, he declared this profound open invitation to them and to you and to me today. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. God invites us to show up and to notice the many, many ways that he loves us and to experience it. And then out of that flows the river of embodying love. So where have you seen God's divine love? This is a good question to ask every night. Where did I see God's love today? And maybe you got to experience it or maybe someone else did. I asked myself this question and I, um, I saw it. I saw it on Friday and I took some pictures. So I'm going to share this with you. Um, this is a, a, got some pictures up here. This is our Welcome the Stranger Redemptive Community, guys. And um, I want to tell you that the work they do is, is close to my heart, but it's also really, really hard work. And yet nobody there saw it as difficult. They just saw it as, um, and that's the house they're all putting together. They just saw it as something you do. It just overflows from something that they are part of. They could do it, they could do it. If they couldn't, they didn't. No pressure, right? Let me tell you this. Working with refugees has no um, return to it. This family that is moving into this house, is um, they're from the Congo, and they've been on the run and probably um, oppressed by their government. And... I don't know if they're Christians or not. And that's not the point. The point is that out of, out of our God's love for us, these people just decided to provide it for someone else. They may never meet this family, but I will tell you this, the most and best evangelism tool that we have, Lakelanders, and that you have shown, is love. Is love. And, and a kind of love that's not a transaction. A kind of love that gives and gives and gives and doesn't really require anything in return. This family may never, ever see our faces. But they'll know when we say, oh, these were Christians, that it was love. Simple, non-transactional, generous love is how we did it. Lakelanders, you guys do this, and you know this, and you are, um, sometimes it just doesn't get noticed. No, take, a, take a note. When your thing isn't getting noticed, take a little note about how it makes you feel. You know, like, is, did you do it to get noticed, or all those things. Those are all part of the growing journey. They're all part of the things that God is teaching us about his love for us. He gives it generously, and so do you guys. So I'm super proud of you guys for that.